I want to show you five pictures, and I want you to do your best to try to figure out what all of these pictures have in common. Andrew, fire the first laser. There we go. Some good uh, fried chicken there, little peas, nice little butter on top. What's, what's peas without some butter? You know what I'm saying? Looks like a Dr. Pepper there. Next slide. All righty. This brings back uh, phenomenal memories for all of the, uh, those of you guys who ever ate in a cafeteria, right? Uh, you probably never, ever saw it quite like this. Uh, next slide, if you can. Now we're talking. Shrimp, strawberries, like French fries dribbled on there like salt, you know? It's the best kind of fries right there. And I think that's actually KFC. Can, can we just agree? Like whatever the colonel did was miraculous, wasn't it? Come on, Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? It's unbelievable. Okay, next slide. Uh, that uh, looks like mint chocolate chip ice cream. Any mint chocolate chip, anyone? Okay, mm-hmm. Praise the Lord. Next slide. All righty. Okay, leave that up there. Any guesses as to what these five pictures have in common? What's that? Unbelievable. Okay. These five pictures are pictures from the last meal of five individuals uh, who were executed. Okay. So let's scroll through them again. If you can just start at the first one, Andrew. Uh, that might not be my last meal. Um, okay. And, uh, this individual, and I forget her name. This was a female. She denied, uh, a meal. Okay. Next slide. I believe this was John Wayne Gacy. Okay. Maybe some of you guys have heard of him before. I think, uh, 33 murders, uh, are attributed to him. Mint chocolate chip. And then finally, this was, um, an olive seed and the individual, and I forget his name, but he thought that if he ate this, that an olive branch would grow inside of him and be a symbol of peace. Okay. Um, (laughs) So my football coach always used to say this. He always used to say, play every down like it's your last because you never know. And uh, some of you guys have heard the story, but my junior year of high school, uh, I was uh, on the kickoff team playing free safety for our team at the time. And uh, ran down the field and tackled the guy who had uh, recovered the kickoff. And my teammate uh, came and earholed me. Uh, you know, he was just trying to help me tackle him. Not that I needed it, but he felt, you know, maybe it would be nice. A nice gesture. And what happened is I lost 20 minutes of my memory. So I completely blacked out. Um, have no recollection of that moment. 20 minutes later, they put me back in the game somehow. Uh, and so the film records me. I played four plays without remembering it at all. And I'm just standing in the back. I didn't even go in the huddle. I'm just like standing in the back. And like the plays are going by me. And then finally someone's like, I think there's something wrong, right? And um, <laughs> so they take me to the hospital and uh, doctors find, which would explain a lot, a bunch of broken blood vessels in my brain that they say have been there since birth. Um, and again, my mom was like, ah, yes, there's the evidence we've been needing. And... Um, <laughs> Anyway, the doctor said that I would never, ever play again. Uh, Turns out that we got some doctor, and I I don't know all the ins and outs. I kind of forget conveniently. We got some doctor on the East Coast to say I was okay, and so I played the next week. Um, (laughs) But in that moment, the thought, uh, play every down like it's your last because you never know, uh, it became real because the thought of not being able to play football again was, um, you know, it it was lulling to my heart. It It was hard to hear. Uh, so I think about these things a lot, and like, like if you were to choose your last meal, right, if you could go out eating one last meal, what would you eat? 
What would you take in? Like, what would be your last meal, right? Um, so for me tonight, here's my approach, and I don't know why this is on my heart. It just is, and so I'm going to go with it. Um, I'm going I'm to preach tonight um, the start of Colossians like it's my last sermon ever. And um, I would hope that every week that that's my approach, that if I had one shot to communicate God's word, that these would be the things that I would share. Uh, but for whatever reason tonight, uh, those things are on my heart. So I don't know what that means for us all here tonight, um, but I'm going to pray uh, that God will just go for it and that we'll roll up our sleeves and see what happens. Is that cool with you guys? Okay. So if I had one shot, one go at it uh, to communicate God's word, if this is my last uh, time to preach God's word, um, maybe this would be it. So let's pray. Uh, Father, like only you can, like only you can right now in these moments, um, draw us to yourself, awaken our hearts, bring a, a level of boldness to approach your throne in confidence, not because of shame, but in light of grace. I pray that across the board in the, in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here tonight. In your great and holy name, amen. So open your Bibles, my friends, to Colossians uh, chapter 1. That's right. A year in Exodus is now over, and the journey of Colossians begins. We're going to get through all of two verses tonight. Now, many of you guys have just been at Matthias for the narrative, because we studied Acts, which was mostly narrative or stories. Then we studied Exodus, you know, nights where we would journey through a chapter two, one night five, and one evening. Those days are done in Colossians. And now we move to a new approach of learning. Colossians certainly isn't a narrative. It is uh, a, a letter that's written to a church. We're going to walk through that and those uh, details here this evening. But um, we're really going to be uh, wrestling with small chunks every single night. So I still think Colossians uh, will take uh, Jared and myself all of five or six months. Okay, It's one of the shorter Pauline letters, but uh, it's going to take us a while anyway. So here's where we're going to begin. Verse 1 and 2 of Colossians, uh, Colossians chapter 1, here we go. This is all we're studying right here. This is it, right? So it's probably only going to be like a 20-minute teaching. Probably not. Paul, <laughs> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Your first thought is, Mark, but... How can two verses that are a greeting surmise an entire teaching? And I'm so glad you asked, okay? Uh, so let's begin first. Next slide. Let's begin with Paul. I don't want to assume anything, okay? And you can see our rhythm here. It's going to be like a word at a time, okay? I feel like we just need a refresher, or for some of you, you need to be brought into who Paul is, okay? Apparently, Paul is the writer of this particular letter, so let's look at a little bit of a biography of who Paul is. Next slide. First of all, he, he was form, the artist formerly known as Saul, okay? Um, so before he comes to Christ, he is born uh, uh, as a Jew, and his name is Saul of Tarsus. Next uh, slide. He's a devout Jew and also, uh, some of you may not know, a persecutor of Christians. The first uh, martyr that is uh, written about in Acts is the stoning of Stephen, and yes, Paul, uh, then Saul, is residing over the execution. So he was a uh, Jew that was charged uh, to go after those who believed in Jesus in the early movement. Uh, in response to the voice and pursuit of God, the scripture records in Acts 9 that he submits his life to Christ. Powerful moment in Acts 9. 
Uh, God's voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He looks up, is blinded by the light, great song, and then uh, for three days is blinded, turns his life to the Lord, bends the knee in submission, and goes from a killer of Christians to one who is a Christian himself. So much so, next slide, uh, by Acts 13, he is now on the receiving end of persecution. So Paul goes from uh, being the uh, presiding agent of those Christians who would be killed, and then soon he is the one who is uh, being persecuted himself. Next slide. He writes between 13 to 15 books of the New Testament, and your, not, uh, your next question, rightfully so, would be, why isn't there an exact number? Well, the problem is some of the uh, letters of the New Testament that were written to particular churches or areas of the world uh, it's a little bit difficult to gauge who wrote, for instance, Hebrews. We studied Hebrews here at Matthias, and the entire time we studied it, I said, like, look, we're not sure of authorship. There are some things that are like Paul, and there are other things that aren't. So there are a few letters that are question marks. There are some that are definitely Pauline, and I believe Colossians to be one of those. Finally, he dies as a martyr in 67 or 68 AD at the hands of the ruthless Nero, uh, Nero, I believe it was in 68 or 69, uh, kills himself, okay? And so uh, he himself dies just after the execution of Paul. Paul, as much as we can see, was beheaded uh, soon after a prison stint. So quite a biography of the writer of this letter, okay? Beautiful, actually, biography of the writer of this letter. Next slide. Let's move on now a little bit to our good friend, Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God, and who else? That's right, our good friend Timothy. Okay, well, who is Timothy? Uh, well, Timothy is first uh, called, listen to this, by Paul to go get circumcised in Acts chapter 16. Okay, this isn't a normal greeting when you meet friends, right? You don't normally say, hey, it's nice to meet you. Want to go get circumcised? Come back and then we'll talk. It's not a normal conversational beginner, okay? But it was for uh, Paul. And so Timothy is a young man at the time, the scripture records, uh, probably grew up with some strong uh, Christian uh, females in his life. And so he goes off, gets circumcised, and then Timothy comes back and becomes a, a very familiar disciple of Paul and soon co-laborer. Uh, Timothy is on the, uh, on the beginning of five of Paul's letters. So there's questions about this. Why is Timothy added? Did he help Paul write it as if Paul needed help? Um, probably not. Uh, is it possible that, uh, that, that Timothy was actually uh, penning the words as Paul spoke them at times on the other side of a prison cell? Quite possibly. Um, but we see First and Second Thessalonians, for instance, uh, as uh, uh, these intros that Timothy is on. We're not quite sure how the inclusion is, except to say that Paul wanted confidence to be built in the churches that he was writing to, that when Timothy went there, that it was as if Paul was going uh, for him, if that makes sense. So these two, Paul and Timothy, both um, in some ways author, certainly with God's inspiration, this great book of Colossians. Next slide. Now, a Colossae, or as some would say, uh, a Coloss, we're going to have some fun here. This is the area of the world that uh, that, that Paul's writing to. A ton of fun facts here, okay? Uh, first of all, it sits 8,400 feet above sea level, okay? Not that all of you are counting, but I want to show you some pictures just to kind of help give you a landscape. This is zoomed out. You'll see this uh, in biblical uh, terminology. This is Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, okay? And uh, if you see the zoomed-in next uh, slide, you'll see here where, uh, where uh, Colossae sits, 
okay, right on a river, right next to Laodicea and Heropolis. Uh, in 481, if you guys, some of you guys who have seen a 300, maybe you're familiar with Xerxes, or if you've ever read a history book. Um, Xerxes is a, a very prominent uh, a dictator, I think maybe would be the best way to describe him. In 481, Xerxes comes to Colossae. And in 481, Colossae is a booming metropolis right on the river. Laodicea hasn't been built up yet. Heropolis hasn't grown yet as a city. And so the major city, the major thoroughfare, the major port uh, on this river Lycus was, in fact, uh, Colossae. Okay? Uh, the problem was that was the beginning of its decline. Soon after that, Laodicea gets built up 12 miles uh, just uh, to the east. And then soon, Heropolis grows and Colossae's decline begins. Next slide. Uh, this is what's left true story. There's nothing left, okay? It is uh, unexcavated. Uh, that means like no one has gone in and tried to dig up the remains. Um, the city, listen to this, was destroyed twice by earthquake, okay? Uh, the first was uh, somewhere around 6 or so AD, and the second, uh, 6 or 7, I believe, uh, AD, and the second was around the 60s, early 60s in AD, and after the second earthquake, um, they barely rebuilt the city. By 400 A.D., Colossae was completely gone off the map. Okay? Next slide, just to kind of help continue our perspective. This is the Google Earth uh, image of it. And you can see there, a lot of green, not a whole lot of buildings. Next slide, a little bit zoomed in. You can, that's Colossae right there. One massive wiffle ball field. Okay? Like that's, that's pretty much what it is down to now. And, uh, and finally, this is like looking at uh, what, what used to be the city. So it sat in this very uh, mountainous, uh, I think you'd argue with me, beautiful terrain. This is uh, the city uh, that Paul writes to. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. So I want you to understand something as we're journeying through this. Anytime you read the Bible, there's always context to who is writing it and why they're writing and what the season is of the church and the city um, at the time. And so on Never get to this point uh, where you, you find yourself lazy in your study of the word that you don't take time to figure uh, these things out, okay? Um, every piece of the context I just shared and that I'm going to continue to share with you are absolutely quintessential in the interpretation of what's being written. For that reason, next slide, okay? Did Paul plant a church in Colossae? Did he plant a church there? I think for most of us, and I would even say including myself in a season of my life, I would have assumed that every single one of Paul's letters, he journeyed there, he went there, he spent time there. Uh, he did not ever go to Colossae, never once, didn't go. Okay. He did spend three years in Ephesus, which is about 100 miles away. Okay. So he never plants, never goes, isn't the founder of the church. Okay. Next slide, this gives us some indication. In Acts chapter 19, here's what we see. While Paul's in Ephesus... This continued for two years, and I added here the uh, parentheses, preaching the kingdom of God, which is the context, so that all the residents, look at this, of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So while Paul is in Ephesus, he's preaching God's word, and the scripture records that everyone in Asia is hearing about the word of the Lord. Well, one of those men that travel up to Ephesus while Paul is spending three years uh, there is this guy, okay? Epaphras. Now, 
Now, this guy is mentioned in a verse, chapter 7, I believe, of Colossians 1. He's mentioned also in chapter 4. And then we see him later in Philemon as well as a guy who apparently goes up to hear the word of God, goes down deeply affected by the word that Paul preaches, and he, in fact, is the planter of the church. Now, what's really, really, really interesting is if the city was destroyed by earthquake, then the question is, when, when did it get written? Right? Because like, if Paul, if Paul like, is writing to an area where he, he maybe, like they're already in ruins, he probably wouldn't have written it, right? Hey, I hope the earthquake restructuring is going okay, you know? Love you, Paul, right? Like he, he probably would have said something like that. So we have a little bit of indication that because he didn't mention it in the letter, I'll, I'll give you a little foreshadowing. The earthquake isn't talked about, okay? Uh, nor is Colossae talked about in Acts, okay? So there's some other variables here that are going on that are causing uh, this letter to be written, of which we'll journey through here in just a second. Next slide. So why did Paul write? Well, here's what happens apparently. Apparently, our good friend who got saved... In Ephesus, at the hand of Paul's teaching, um, somehow gets word to Paul that these young, fragile Christians in Colossae are beginning, or at least he can see that there is the potential of some heresy that's beginning uh, to come in. Let me give you uh, this example. Maybe this will help. So uh, we just had our first Ecuador meeting uh, this past Monday at our house. Listen to this, 30 people are going to Ecuador this spring, crazy amounts. And it just so happened, for those of you guys that were at our New Year's Eve celebration last week, we had a friend that was here from La Fuente, our partner church. She came and visited Matt Maria and stayed with the whole crew. Dupi was her name, okay? Strange name, beautiful girl. She's awesome, okay? And so she shared with us, and inevitably, on every trip you have some folks who are new and some folks who have been. And at some point, it's just kind of funny to joke about drinking the water, okay? Um, it's kind of like if you've ever been maybe on a, you know, on a mission trip or a vacation, uh, you know, to Central South America, you know, sometimes the water isn't the best for your intestinal tract, okay? Um, some of you guys have paid the price, right? And so it's always funny to, to hear the preventative measures that go on. Hey, listen, like, do not drink the water. Don't eat this. Don't do this. Like, trust me, I was there, right? And it's always funny to, like, watch. By the end of the by the end of the meeting, like, people are like, I'm not so sure I want to go to this, you know? Like, it sounds like I can die in 16 different ways. You can, and that's why it's awesome, right? And, and <laughs> right? And so it's, it's like all of these preventative measures um, to promote health. And that's exactly why this letter was written. So listen, uh, from a supposed prison cell, there's three different possibilities of where he's in prison. Uh, by all the research I've done, I, I land that, that he's probably because of timing in Rome. So from a Roman prison, listen, Paul hears of this young, fragile church that he's never even seen or been to. And he hears that there is potential heresy that's coming in. Now, if you were here with us many years ago when we studied 1 John... The heresy that surrounded 1 John was Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism was a very familiar heresy in the, in the age, in the day. And what Gnosticism did in every uh, measure and means was diminish the divinity and power of Jesus. And we could argue that that's what every heresy 
does, and, and I would agree with you. But Gnosticism had some very particular bullet points to it. This is not probably Gnosticism, but uh, some kind of uh, a variance of it or vein of it. But nonetheless, the heresy uh, that our good friend uh, Epaphras hears is he hears that, that there's some kind of teaching that's going to come in and it's going to diminish Jesus. So listen to this. Paul in a prison cell to a place that he's never been to, people he's never even seen, he hears that the gospel has the potential of being defamed. Can you picture him for a second in the cell? Starting to pace around, right? You can, you can picture the eyes maybe a little bit. You're like, but Mark, I've never seen you know, a picture of Paul. Just imagine yourself, and I pray this is you, in situations where the gospel is being defamed around you, picture the passion that's ignited in your heart in those moments. And now picture a dude who's in a cell getting ready to die for that movement. And he's so incredibly anxious to send word to these people to take heart and talk about the power of Christ and say, no, 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 you must not listen to the posers or anything that would distract you from the power of Christ. Are you, am I, that passionate? about any semblance of heresy that we would pace in a prison cell and send a letter hundreds and hundreds of miles away to protect the power of the gospel? Is that where we would be? Is that our heart? I, I picture this has to be Paul. He hears word. Why else would he say? Like, well, I've never heard of those people. I mean, I barely even, like, that's it. Wasn't that, like, wasn't that destroyed by an earthquake several years ago? Like, are, they, are there even people still there? Why would I take time to send a letter about the gospel to people I don't even know are there from the first earthquake? And yet Paul paces in his cell and says, oh, no, no, the gospel is worth it. It's worth every letter of everything that I would ever pen. And so I picture in this letter his heart bursting out. Why? Because he longs for these young, fragile new believers to flourish in Christ. Step back. I pray that's us. Um, it's very, very easy for new believers to become hash marks on our Christian chore chart. We just started a chore chart in our house. Okay? Do you guys have one of these? It's amazing what happens to children when you throw up a chore chart on the refrigerator, right? So what we said is, we're trying to teach our kids uh, to give, and we're trying to teach your kids generosity. At the same time, we're trying to teach them hard work. All right, here's what happens on the chore chart. Kids are going to put up this thing. We're going to list out chores. Every time you do one of these, you get a hash mark. That equivocates to a quarter, okay? Uh, at certain times, we may take things away. So, I mean, these, these kids are, are absolutely obsessed all of a sudden with helping around the house. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, they went from, you know, at dinner table, piecing out, and now they're like, Daddy, can we wipe the table and sweep the floor and take the trash out and take the dog out? We don't even have a dog. They're, like, trying to make up stuff to, like, earn hashtags, right? And sometimes I feel like for us that new believers become just a tally mark. In other words, they, they just become a story for us so that we can tell people that things are happening at our church. But in our heart... Like the, the amount of joy, the amount of a celebration, the amount of discipleship that longs for us to pour into others, those are all afterthoughts. The main thought is, hey, at least people are being saved in here. At least I'm going to a church where I'm seeing baptisms. I pray against that here. I pray against every new follower of Christ, a celebrated, 
and obedience to Christ is baptized, not as a means of salvation, but as a symbol of what Christ has done. And I pray that those people are discipled, that young believers here in this body can flourish in Christ. Amen? All right, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Because for years what I saw are new believers get baptized or profess, and then everyone in their heart say, I'm sure someone else is going to disciple that person. I'm sure someone else will pour into them. Or, you know, they'll, they'll figure it out on their own. No, Paul tells Timothy, like who is, a, who is a growing lad, to come and follow him. Jesus tells these guys to come and follow him. There's a reason why discipleship is inherited through the church. And so I pray that that would be us. As much passion for new believers, that we would walk and guide and journey alongside of them. So every Christian plays their part. And some of you guys have been looking at the stronger believers and saying, no, that's your part to play. I disagree. Jesus says, go and make disciples, and there isn't exemption clauses in that command. Only if you're good enough, or only if you smile, or only if you wear a WWJD bracelet. No, like none of that is there. So he writes with passion to try in the will of God to prevent heresy by coming in this young, formidable church. Next slide. Oh, dear heavens, one of my favorites. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. <laughs> All right, so if we're not assuming anything, the first thing we need to do is define apostle. Because some of you guys have heard the word apostle before, but if someone just went around like randomly with a microphone and said, how would you define apostle? The question is, like, what does it mean? Or better, what's the difference between a disciple and an apostle? So a disciple in the scripture, or even now, is a learner, is a pupil, is by, uh, by definition a follower. So when Jesus says, come follow me to his disciples, literally in term, that's what they're doing, following Jesus. They're a pupil, they're a learner. He's the teacher, they're the student. An apostle is very different. An apostle is someone who is being sent. So it may be implied that the apostle was discipled, learned, was a pupilized, he got pupilized, is that, no? Okay. And then, because of his learning growth, maturity, then he gets sent out. So Paul calls himself an apostle. Now here's my question. Is there any piece of you that sees this as a little bit arrogant? You're like, man, Paul, you're kind of calling your shot here, aren't you? Like, is this some, like, chess move of authority as you write to this formidable church. Hey, I know you've never met me, right? Church in Colossae. But I sure do love you guys. And I'm sure you've heard of me. My name's Paul. Used to be Saul. I killed people. Now I don't, you know? <laughs> and I'm not so sure if you have seen my name badge on my cell, but it says apostle. That's right, right? So, so is, this a, is this a power move? So that when the church reads this letter, when it's preached... When it gets passed around, the people will be like, oh, okay, Paul's an apostle. Is that the reason? I don't think so. I think he understands who he is. I think he understands exactly who he is. He calls himself apostle because that's who he is. He's been called by God and sent by God. Now, let me share this passage with you because I think maybe you'll find it encouraging. Galatians chapter 4, check this out. Another letter that Paul wrote in the same way we also 
when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, that's Jesus, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as what? As sons. Now there is all this language in the scripture that talks about the identity shift of followers of Christ. And this is one of them. And because you are sons, anyone who is a believer in Jesus, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. So confession of Jesus as Lord, submission to Father God, God blesses, seals our hearts with the spirit crying, Abba, Father, verse 7, look at this, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Here's what I'm saying, my friends. Do you call yourself what you are? Because I will guarantee you right now, the enemy, Hasatan, the accuser in the Old Testament, the name for Satan, your flesh, your past, your friends are trying by everything they possibly can, every power they have to shift your identity and you think in your mind that you're not who you really are. In other words, if Satan can change sonship and make it shameful, if your flesh can take freed by the grace of God and bring condemnation. If all of a sudden, like he can create, or our flesh can create, or your mind can create identity confusion, then you're not calling yourself who you already are, and then it creates all of this disdain in service and following of God. You are in Christ a son, and if a son, then an heir. That doesn't leave out you females, that's implied. Sons and daughters, then an heir. Church, we have to start calling ourselves who we are. No, we are blood-bought, ransomed by the cross of Christ, and because of that, freed, freed to serve, freed to love, freed to live. That's who we are. I don't care what the enemy says. I don't care what my friend says. I don't care what this church says over here. I'm freed by Jesus. So when Paul calls his shot, he's calling it from a cell in boldness. No, I'm an apostle. That's who I am. I know exactly who I am. I don't need to hide from that. I don't need to be shameful of that. I don't, need, I don't need to deny that. Don't think for one second that by calling yourself a son and if a son an heir as something that, that's done in arrogance. Now it can certainly get there as our hearts are all sinful, but don't think just by definition that there's an arrogance that goes along with that, my friends. We must claim victory in our new identity. And Paul does. I'm an apostle. Listen, one more, one more note on this. Um, don't you love that his confidence isn't wavered by a jail cell? I'm going I'm to try as best as I can to like usher us into the cell as much as I can. Isn't it incredible that he's not like holding the cell thinking like, well, God must not love me anymore. Come on now, hold on a second. But how many of you have done that? You're like, Mark, I've never been in a prison cell but maybe you felt held captive. But maybe you felt in bondage. Right? And in those moments of all of that rush of feelings, you start thinking, God doesn't love me. God hasn't called me. God doesn't care anymore. And by the way, this isn't the first time that Paul is in a cell. We just saw in Acts chapter 13, like he was already in persecution. He's been whipped, left for dead, He's been shipwrecked on a boat. Like, he's been through everything, and we still see him. Nope, nope, nope. I love my God, and I'm an apostle of his. Next slide. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. I've been thinking about this, um, this little segment of text almost the most since last week. Last week, I taught the doctrine of prayer. And one of the big doctrines of prayer in 1 John chapter 5 is that when we pray in his will, he hears and he answers. And the biggest question that people are always asking is, how can I be sure of God's will? Is it God's will that I take this job? Is it God's will that we move here? Is it God's will that I get in or out of this relationship and on and on? What is the will of God? What I've learned in my personal life, and I see this affirmed by Scripture, one of our promises is as we draw near to him, he draws near to us. And as I align myself with the person and character of God, there are revelations that come about the character of God and therefore the will of God. Well, Paul has seen this massive light from the Lord himself, been blinded by it. And so Paul stands in confidence after hearing the voice of God saying, look, like I'm not an apostle clearly by the will of God. In other words, as if to say, there isn't one bone in my body that can attribute my salvation to myself. Think about it. He's on a road ready to kill some more Christians or at least capture. And then God says, no, no, no. Uh, I know you've been a persecutor, but... Now you're going to be persecuted. He's saying like, there's no way I would have written this script. So it's by the will of God that I'm an apostle. That's who I am. Celebrating God's will. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. In verse 2, we see the, the intention of this letter. In other words, and again, this is critical. Whenever you're studying, you need to see this. You need to understand this. This is written to who? It's written to believers. Okay. So Paul isn't trying to evangelize the non-believer in his writing. He's trying to encourage the believer. So every a doctrine that we learn, every theology that we see, and in fact, uh, my favorite uh, section in the entire, uh, all of Pauline letters is coming up in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23, the supremacy of Christ. It's going to take us at least two months just in that section, okay? All of this is pointed towards believers so believers can understand, so believers can be encouraged. Next slide. Now, do you remember when you used to write letters? How many of you guys still write actual letters? Just by a raise of hand, okay? One, two, skip a few, four of us, okay. Okay. And so when you learned in grade school how to write a letter, um, you learned, right, like dear, and then you put the person's name or the collection of names, comma, and then you were taught to like start out with some nice pleasantries, and then towards the end of the letter, you would sincerely or love or whatever the case may be, you were taught to, to do a good letter. So you, you said you still write letters, brother? You write some letters? Which is, you have like a classic opening that's like your pen, like people just know it's automatically you, like a heart or a smiley face or something? Yeah, super cool. So thank you cards with like a bunch of flowers and stuff on them. Yeah, it's good. It's real good. <laughs> It's real good. So my first question when I read this, grace to you and peace from God our Father, is this just a nice thing to say? So then the next question is, does he ever say this again? The answer to that is all the time. Okay? So looking at all of Paul's letters, you're going to find very similar verbiage. There may be a, you know, a little bit like peace may come before grace or... But in general, this is 
the entrance to his letters. Similarly, it's also the exit often. Grace to you. Peace to you, he says. So as much as I can, as much as we can together, let's ask the question, like, is, this, is there more here? And as I picture um, a man sitting in a cell, and often as he wrote these letters, at least four or five of them from cells, I picture this man writing this opening. And in this case, he's writing it to people he's never met. He's writing it to people he's never hugged, people he's never seen respond to his teaching. So he has no selfish motivation at all. So I picture a man pacing in a cell, and when he says grace, just the word, even though it seems like it's in the intro of a letter, I picture in my mind, in my heart, a guy whose heart is just exploding out of his chest because of the depth of the word grace. I picture like everything in his being, when he says grace, to whoever it is that's going to read or hear or understand this letter, I don't think this is just a nice pleasantry or a high five or a hello. I think he really means grace. Everything you don't deserve, hear this right now, grace to you. Why does he do that? Because he's received it. Completely undeserving. In fact, I think you would argue with me, as he does himself, a person who's killing Christians seems like not the person that should receive grace. That person seems like they should be on death row and get their last meal at some point. But instead, God saw it fit in his Grace to save the killer and make him an apostle. And so when he says grace, he's saying, trust me, he's gracious. Trust me, like everything in me was destined to die. But what I've realized now is God in the richness of his mercy and the depth of his will said, no, you now, son, are mine. Grace. Can I challenge you with something? There are levels in Christian um, rhetoric that just become rhetoric. Uh, Let me give you an example. I'm praying for you. I was just meeting with uh, the guy I'm discipling right now a couple days ago. And we were talking about that, that phrase. And I was like, all right, you're you're a newer believer. How many times have people just said, you know, I'm praying for you? How many times have you seen this come up in your life? I experience it all the time. I'm praying for you. And every once in a while, I just think in my mind like, okay, that's, are you just saying that to encourage me? Or are you really, like, why don't you just stop and pray now? That'd be way better. Like, don't say you're going to pray for me and then forget and walk away and deceive both of us. Let's just stop. Throw down now. That'll be great. You know? So there's all these rhythms that we get in as Christians and we just start saying things and we're not even sure what we're saying or if we believe them. And I'm telling you right now, grace is one of those words. It's nice. It makes us smile. You know, it, it, like we picture kittens in our minds, you know. Not my wife. She hates them and wants to kill them. But some of you, my wife will literally like steer and veer into a cat if it's crossing the street. Even if it's not black, okay. She's like goes after it, right. Not much laughter there, hon. I think people are judging you because of that. Um, 
<laughs> is grace for you just a word? Is it just something that you write in your journal every once in a while to make yourself feel better about your sin? Or has the depth of it reached the core of your heart? I believe that when Paul opens this letter to a church he's never met, he says grace for a reason. Because he's been absolutely changed by it. And then he says peace. Christmas songs come in our mind. Amy Grant singing Prince of Peace, Mighty God, right? Most of you don't know who Amy Grant is. Um, Sandy Patty, maybe? No? Okay. Sticks? Okay. They didn't sing that song. Um, <laughs> if he's the Prince of Peace, if because of his grace brings peace, when Paul says from his cell, grace and peace, I picture a man saying from a cell, listen, as this heresy comes, as this teaching tries to take away, please hear this, as this teaching tries to take away the power of Christ, you must understand there is only one source of grace and peace. Because everything is trying to offer it. You'll find peace through this. You'll experience grace if you just go through this avenue. But instead, Paul says, grace to you and peace. From who? From God, the author of it, the originator of it. Grace and peace. Next slide. I wonder if Paul ever um, heard of these words. My guess is, is that he did. My guess is Paul heard that Jesus on the cross looked down to a whole bunch of people who were literally murdering him. And somehow, instead of hatred, saw them through a different lens. Now look, I don't wear glasses, and so forgive me. These are actually prescription glasses, okay? But most of the time, when we look at people, we see them through a lens of judgment, of hatred, of have to measure up, of what have you done for me lately, or what did you do to me lately. And so the lens that we're consistently seeing people through has nothing to do with grace and everything to do with works. The problem is the lens that Jesus sees through. The glass, the vein, the power that he views everything is through grace. Oh yes, he will bring judgment. He will bring fire. But the lens that he taught the disciples to receive, the grace that he extended to those who would believe is you must, because of having received it yourself, see everyone through this lens of grace. So how is it, listen, that Paul preaches grace to a church he has never even met? Why? Because he lives life seeing through lenses of grace. Because he's experienced it himself. 
He doesn't see people in hatred or disgust or, hey, what's that church? You know, hey, well, have they given anything to my ministry? Okay, then we'll send a nice pleasant letter and say grace and peace. He doesn't ask. He's received grace himself. And so the lens then that he sees everyone, stranger or not, is grace and peace. Listen, right now, please. What in the world would happen to your life if that was the lens that you viewed the world through? So if it's not the lens, then what are we communicating? To me, there's only one option, that we haven't really understood grace. That there's something still that's like missing in our mind about what grace really is. Jesus taught like, look, if if you desire forgiveness, forgive others. Here's what 1 Peter says to empower us. Check this out. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on what? On the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when you're ready for that, sober-minded in action, then you see everything through that lens of grace. So listen, right now, all of the enemies. What if the the lens changed? Every person who's ever wronged you. Every person who you have no idea who they are. You can't trust them yet because you don't know their story. All they are right now for you is a face in a grocery store. And yet you look at them and you look at their body type and you're like, lazy. Or you look at their kids and you say, bad parent. Or you look at their age and and you're like, you know, feeding off the government. What is this doing to us? It's killing us. Because the thing we have is we have experienced grace ourselves, undeserved. We haven't done one thing to appease the wrath of God. Instead, Jesus appeased it all so that we could receive it. So that he could say, your sons, and if sons, then heirs, then what in the world are we doing by looking at the world through lenses of hatred and judgment and wrath and disgust? Listen, we are freed by Christ having received grace ourselves to look through a lens consistently of grace. And so Paul from a cell says grace and peace to you. I've never met you. I don't know all your names. I don't have pictures in my wallet of your kids. But I know this. I'm a brother with you. I'm a sister with you. You are a stranger, yes, maybe, because we've never met, and yet we're family. Grace and peace to you. Listen, if you've never received the grace of God, if you come here tonight and you've you've never, ever, ever tasted forgiveness, you've never, ever, ever, just, just even for a second, understood how A God would forgive even you. Take Paul for an example. The scripture says, call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Ask him to be not just your savior, but your Lord. Call on him tonight. Believe and trust that grace is given for all and for the rest of us. The lenses must change. And the great thing is, if you've received it, celebrating it, 
sitting in it, then the lens already has changed. So church, let's stand together. Come on. In another one of Paul's letters, this beautiful depiction of what grace is, he says this in his, in his letter. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer, he says, be grace. So if any of us have for one second diminished the value of it, tonight it has to change, be repented of, celebrated anew. Somehow this man's heart is bursting forth and I believe it's because he remembered what he came from. He remembered how undeserving he is and was and still will be and yet God has said, no, you're an apostle, a son, an heir. And in Christ, he's done that for you, my friends. And now we walk in freedom. Seeing the abuser with grace. Loving every enemy of ours with grace. Journeying with those closest to us, the family members that have hurt us, all with lenses of grace. God, help us believe right now in this moment the reality of the gospel. Help us believe that it's more than myth or fairy tale. Help us believe, God, that it really is grace and peace that comes from you as the sole source. Overwhelm us tonight. Empower us tonight. Change the lens of our eyes we truly, God, can extend the grace that you've given to us, to everyone. Give us that heart, God.